This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. From ABC News headquarters, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. More of America has been ordered indoors as cases of coronavirus climb. No state has more than New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo enacted a workforce reduction policy that mandates all but essential businesses to keep at least 50 percent of their workforce at home. The federal task force overseeing the coronavirus response asked hospitals across the country to postpone elective surgeries that would free up much-needed hospital space. A shortage of ventilators remained a concern nationwide, particularly in the hardest-hit states. Coronavirus is now in every state in the country. To try to alleviate some of the financial pain of the virus response, the Trump administration announced there would be no immediate foreclosures or evictions. Congress is working on additional relief. The Treasury Department proposed delivering $500 billion worth of checks to Americans beginning April 6th. But no amount of money may be enough to quell the fears of investors. Trading has been halted again on the New York Stock Exchange after the S&P 500 moved 7% lower triggering a Wall Street circuit breaker. Detroit automakers are talking about closing their factories. President Trump said he would invoke the Defense Production Act that instructs the private sector to meet government orders for products that FEMA deems necessary in this crisis. Police departments across the country are adjusting to how their officers keep the peace. Certain nonviolent offenses may no longer require an arrest. Certain reports are being taken over the phone or online to preserve resources and to keep officers at a safe distance. Dr. Richard Besser, president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, joins us now. He used to be our chief health and medical editor here at ABC News, and he used to run the Centers for Disease Control. So, Dr. Besser, you've seen this movie before. Well, you know, I have and I haven't because for every new disease that comes, uh, that spreads, it has its own playbook. And so you can learn something from previous outbreaks, but this is unlike any pandemic I've been involved in before. Uh, It's unlike any public health threat that I've been involved in before. It's got its own uh, real challenges. Are we doing the right things? Well, you know, you often only know that in retrospect. Uh, you know, if, if if you see that the 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 curve is not as steep, the number of people getting as, as sick is not as fast as it could have been, uh, and you can attribute that to some of your behavior, then it's like, yeah, we did good. Um, but many times we'll do things, and a disease will run its own course, and we won't really know how much of it was due to what we did, and how much was just the nature of that disease. And, and our response then, I know that's where your focus is because sometimes things have unintended consequences and and the measures that we think are good for everybody only end up helping some of us. That's my that's my biggest concern here. You know, I I spent 13 years at the CDC and we would study the science and we would come up with recommendations for what people would do. But we didn't spend all that much time talking about, well, who is able to do the things that we're recommending and who's not? And what is it we can do as a society to make sure that everyone can take the steps to reduce the risk to themselves, to their families and communities? And here in particular, I'm seeing big gaps in that area. Is that all economics? Well, it's, it's, it's not all economics, uh, though economics is a big part of it. You know, so many people, most people in America live paycheck to paycheck. And so if you're not working, you're not getting paid. 
for people who are lower income, uh, in particular for communities of color where there is so little wealth accumulation, not working that week may determine whether or not you're putting food on the table, whether you're able to pay rent. Those are big things. Uh, there are 28 million people in America who don't have health insurance. Uh, so when we say don't go in to see your doctor if you're sick, just call and and find out and they'll tell you. Well, if you don't have a doctor, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the emergency room. And if you weren't sick before, you've got a chance that you were exposed to someone there when when you didn't need to be. So it's 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 really pointing out all of these holes in what we think of as a safety net. We we lack a safety net that so many other countries in the world have for their citizens. Because some of what you talk about has has been true for a long time. It just becomes more acute in a crisis like this. Yeah, when you when you stress the system, when you are asking people to do things uh, that are different, you see things that were there anyway. Uh, you see that that there are marginalized communities. Whether you're talking about rural communities, Native American communities, communities of color, uh, that that. Uh, don't have the same resources as other communities. And it may be easy to look away uh, every day, but during a crisis like this, it, it really shines the light on those who are, who are really at risk here. Is there one or two things that you're most concerned about or that are most glaring to you now? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned about the issue of, of economic security and what's going to happen to people who don't have money coming in. You know, if the government decides to put money in people's pockets, I think that's a good thing. We hear of businesses that are asking for billions and billions of dollars. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're looking at how to simulate the economy and what needs to be done there. Um, but look at, at the everyday worker in America uh, and look at all of the people who aren't working because of this crisis who actually may not be at great risk of getting this infection. We are asking people to take steps to protect others. You know, 80% of people may have no symptoms or mild symptoms. That's a challenging thing here. Um, altruism is not the biggest motivator. And we're asking people to do things to protect the elderly, to protect people who have multiple medical problems. We need to make it easy for people to do the right thing. Even when it's not easy, it's hard to get people to, to not do that. But here in this situation, we need to make it exceedingly easy. Because coronavirus was thought to have started based on travel, does that necessarily make it a class-conscious disease? Wow. I mean, that, that, that's a good one. I, I think that, that when you look at the spread of diseases around the world, they, they all have something to do with travel. And the fact that you know, we're such a global uh, uh, world now, uh, that, that something that happens in, in China or Africa or America doesn't stay contained there. Um, a lot of new emerging infectious diseases emerge in places where humans and animals come in very close contact, and you have the, the ability for for microbes to share information and and switch things over so that things that weren't infecting people now are, um, and then they and then they take off. But that could happen. Uh, it's probably accelerated by by people with resources who are traveling the globe. Um, but I think it has more there to do with the speed than necessarily with the class. And, and so now what do we, what do, we do? We're, we're all practicing our social distancing. Uh, you and I did our elbow bump instead of shaking hands. But, but in terms of caring for those who are going to be economically at risk, if the cure is 
worse than the disease, that that doesn't seem good. Well, I, I think we have to ask those questions. We have to be look at every intervention that we're trying to do and, and what we're trying people to get people to do in terms of not interacting with each other and social distancing. We have to study those. We have to look and see what worked overseas and what didn't work uh, because it's a layered uh, number of things we ask people to do. We ask people to, to, to wash their hands. Well, we do that because there's some evidence there. We ask people to cover their coughs and sneezes. Again, there's evidence there. We're closing schools. Well, let's look at the evidence there. You know, there's some concern that closing schools will mean that children, instead of spending all their day with children, will spend it with their elderly grandparents. And so you may be putting children, some children in closer contact with people at risk. That's, a, that's something that can be studied and looked at. And we need to be willing to look at it critically to say, did it help or did it, uh, did it hurt? I, I think that one factor about a pandemic that needs to play in here in terms of our learning is that it doesn't happen everywhere at the same rate at the same time. So it started in China. It moved to some countries that were contiguous and it moved to Italy. Now in the U.S., we're seeing it in Seattle, in different areas. As these areas try something, we need to learn from it. It doesn't mean that everyone in America should be shutting down at the same time. When the time is right, you want to shut down. Um, but you want to make sure that we're learning from places that shut down earlier in terms of what worked and what didn't. I learned during H1N1 when we, we rec- – this was the swine flu in 2009. Yeah. We, we, we put out guidance that with the first case of swine flu in a school, close the school for two weeks. Uh, do an investigation and test people. And I got a call from, from the head of the health department out in Seattle and he said, your guidance is nuts. I said, no, it isn't because you can shed virus for two weeks. We want kids to stay away from each other. He said, they're not staying away from each other. They're, they're at the mall. They're at the library. They're downtown. It's not working. And it's, we learned from that. And said, what we learned was that people need to work. And if you're just closing their schools, the kids are going to need to go somewhere. So you know, as we're doing these measures, we need to look really closely to say, okay, if we want people to stay home, how do we help them do that? And another another thing is, if if you know, this was an interesting figure that one third of all nurses are the primary caregiver for children, and so when you close schools, are you losing a third of your nursing staff because they're now at home taking care of their kids, and you now don't have those nurses uh, to take care of patients? And it's not just nurses; it's respiratory therapists, it's clerks in the hospital, it's all of the people you need. Not saying that we don't take these measures, but we better pay attention and study them. And if they're not working, we need to adjust and learn on the fly. Dr. Richard Besser, president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, formerly of ABC News and the Centers for Disease Control. There is real concern, as Dr. Besser notes, about the capacity of the nation's hospitals, uh, staffing, beds, uh, and the danger they could be overrun as the number of coronavirus cases climb. So we get to the front lines now. Dr. Shiraz Siddiqui is Chief of Hospital Medicine at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Jersey. You heard Dr. Besser mention staffing. How are you guys holding up there? So um, all the different departments meet every morning. Uh, There's a morning huddle to discuss staffing and resources. And every department, every division has put together a really great plan of how we're going to surge forward. Um, All those places, all those things, items have been uh, accounted for and plans have been put into place already. Uh, Can you describe... uh how you identify a patient with coronavirus and then what you do to care for them and and, and the resources that that takes? So it's basically a a symptom issue. Um, 
if patients are feeling like they're having a fever or a cough um, or feeling that they're more short of breath, that's, that's the real important uh, aspect for us. Um, they're being seen uh, in the emergency room um, and we're able to triage there uh, whether or not patients need testing or they need admittance. So we've put into, uh, together a really great protocol to evaluate these patients in order so we know whether or not we should test them and what resources we need to be able to use to take care of them. What is your preference from when people who think they may be sick with it should come to the hospital? Because we've heard certain guidance that people should wait a few days to see if their symptoms get worse. So normal symptoms that we're hearing are that patients are having fevers and cough. Um, what we've been instructing people for the most part is if you start to feel short of breath or you feel like your breathing's changing, um, that's probably an important time to let somebody know. Uh, and be evaluated either by your primary care doctor um, or come to the emergency room if you feel your breathing has really shifted from its baseline. There has been a concern expressed by elected officials about the capacity of the nation's hospitals. Uh, I don't want to get into specific numbers with you, but can you give us a general sense of, of, of what you think about that concern? And at your hospital, what do you do to, to best mitigate it? I think capacity is definitely a concern for everyone. Um, and as an academic medical center, we have some of the greatest resources uh, that one can have. Um, our groups, from the emergency room to the hospital service, infectious disease, pulmonary, radiology, um, hospital administration, everybody has come together to come up and design a protocol in order to deal with these patients, place them in the right situation, and to accommodate for even more patients coming in. So we definitely have um, what I believe we called a disaster plan um, in place already. And you know we're ready to deploy that uh, if and when we have to. I, I don't get any sense of panic in your voice. And in, in that, that seems at odds with emergency rooms in other parts of the country. Uh, that, that planning is obviously key. Are you stocked up on supplies? We've heard of shortages elsewhere. Uh, from a supply point of view, um, the health system, Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health, um, has identified additional suppliers to ensure that we've maintained adequate supplies. Um, and as far as um, not hearing any anxiety in my voice, it's, it's really because what we've been doing here, what we've been able to accomplish as of right now, has really allowed us to stay calm in this situation. Mm. Um, again, as, as an academic medical center, we have the ability to use a lot of technology um, that is really helping our staff expand their abilities. Uh, we're using telemedicine and things like that to be able to kind of stretch our abilities even further than we have before. So um, I think the reason you hear calmness in my voice is because I, I believe that we are prepared. Um, you know, we have the resources, we have the planning, and I think we're in a situation right now where we can handle this in a, in a good way. That's good to hear. Uh, finally, doctor, are you able to test all of those that you do want to test? Yes. We, for now, we've been able to um, test the patients that we feel that we need to test. Um, there is, again, a, a process and a protocol to that. Um, and it all depends on what the patient presents with and family members that uh, they have uh, interacted with and who test positive. So um, for now, we have been able to test. And uh, from what I've heard, and again, this is the great communication that we have here, those abilities are, are continuing to improve. That's certainly good news. Dr. Shiraz Siddiqui, 
right there on the front lines. He's Chief of Hospital Medicine at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Jersey. Doctor, our thanks to you. Uh, the White House has been mindful of the pressure on hospitals, and President Trump has finished his daily briefing with the Coronavirus Task Force. ABC's Karen Travers covers the White House. Uh, Karen, the, the president seemed optimistic uh, about the country's response and, and what lies ahead. He did, but he also announced today, Aaron, that the uh, U.S. Navy will be sending hospital ships to be deployed to assist with the COVID-19 response efforts. Uh, the USNS Comfort and the USNS Mercy will be sent. Uh, the Comfort will be heading to New York Harbor. The New York Governor, Andrew Cuomo, had actually already announced that. Each of these Navy hospital ships can treat up to 1,000 patients. So this is a big deal. And you know, the, there have been questions in recent days as to why they had not already been deployed. The president said today that they they had been requested and they're being prepared to head out right now. And it's interesting. They, they, they often put patients in rather close quarters. So they're not meant to treat COVID-19 patients, mm-hmm. but rather ease shifting. some of the pressure. Yeah, exactly. Shifting away from hospitals. And, you know, you just imagine you've been hearing this from doctors and public health officials for days, if not weeks, that now as people start becoming more aware of the symptoms and the spread, there are a lot of people who are thinking, oh, no, what do I have? And are rushing to urgent cares or hospitals to get treated or at least get checked out if they have any fears that it could be novel coronavirus. So there's certainly going to be a lot of uh, traffic jams, if you will, at some of these healthcare facilities. This is one way to ease some of the backlog. Karen, the president was also talking about the pressure and the financial pressure on everyday Americans. Uh, Still no agreement from Congress on what to do. Not yet, but we're getting more details that we're looking at two different rounds of direct payments to Americans, one in the coming weeks, one later uh, around mid-May. The president also announced today that there would be relief for some Americans when it comes to housing payments. He said the Department of Housing and Urban Development will provide immediate relief to renters and homeowners by suspending foreclosures and evictions until the end of April. This is a very big deal and something that housing advocacy groups across this country country have been pushing for uh, as as they're trying to contain cases of coronavirus in homeless shelters and also among communities where housing issues are a big concern, insecurity. ABC's Karen Travers, who covers the White House and, like many Americans, is working from home. How's the family, Karen? (laughs) They're all outside right now riding their bikes in the backyard to keep it quiet inside the house so we can get a little bit of work done. But fresh air seems to be good for three small children. Uh, And maybe the parents, too. ABC's uh, Karen Travers. Uh, ABC's Alex Stone is uh, at his post in Los Angeles. Uh, Also been working from home a bit. Alex, how's your family? Uh, they're doing well. They've been doing a lot of uh, homeschooling and uh, doing what everybody else is doing. It's been raining a lot in California, so that adds in the whole dynamic of you can't go in the backyard, you can't uh, ride bikes outside. So everybody's got a little bit of cabin fever, but it uh, looks like we've got a long time left to go. Yeah, in, in California especially, the governor said schools may be closed for the rest of the year. Yeah, this is a pretty big shock to parents. When this announcement was made, a lot of parents were on social media saying, well, wait, what? That uh, Governor Newsom is saying he does not believe children, at least here in California, will go back to school this school year. Here's how he put it. Because you know what? I need to be transparent and I need to be honest with you the way I'm transparent and honest with my children. He relayed a story about his young daughter being upset in bed, throwing her stuffed animals out, screaming about that she missed her friends and that she wanted to go back to school. And uh, I was with her in a very sober moment over the course of about an hour. 
And I told her, honey, I don't think the schools are going to open again. Newsom is saying he's hoping he's wrong. Many of us as parents are hoping he's wrong as well. But right now, with California's numbers growing, he says it just does not look likely that the schools are going to resume anytime soon. About 98 percent of California schools are now closed every day. More are closing. The entire state has not mandated they close, but they've given them recommendations. And most are following those. A few aren't, but... The governor's saying he just doesn't see it happening, Aaron. And, and, and the governor's also been talking about the National Guard uh, to, to help with some of the humanitarian needs in California. That's right. And interesting, he's not talking about activating, but he is using the, the term call up and lean in, asking the National Guard to lean in to help out as a mutual aid force, that he is tasking the National Guard with helping seniors to help find food and toilet paper. Like in much of the country right now, that's tough to do that a, a senior, even though some stores are opening up early to help out seniors specifically, they get there, they wait in line, that they're around other people who could get them sick, they go in, and then there's no toilet paper, or there's no paper towels, or no canned food. So he wants the, the National Guard to, to do a lot of that. Here's how he put it. Support those mutual aid efforts from a humanitarian perspective, a logistics perspective, a food perspective, supporting our seniors and the like. He says this is a humanitarian mission now in California that the National Guard is on, that they're also going to be keeping the peace at grocery stores. You get people who are going in, you've got these long lines, people are racing into big box warehouse stores or fighting over toilet paper and other things, that he wants the National Guard there to do some of the, the peacekeeping. So it will be statewide now in California. We will begin to see the National Guard out and about. And martial law even being discussed? This is something he was asked about yesterday because so many counties now, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, have shelter-in-place orders in effect more by more. Overnight last night, Sonoma County was added to that, a, a county that you know from all of those wildfires in Santa Rosa in the last couple of years that they were the latest to go on board with this. Many of the other counties in the Bay Area are doing the same, where they're telling people you have to stay inside unless you were out on a critical mission. So it was asked, how far could you go? And the governor saying, look, if we have to, I have the authority to impose martial law. And he says, if we have to go that far, we will go that far. But he said, we are not there yet. It is not needed. He doesn't plan on going there. More counties are likely going to come on board, it appears right now, with the shelter-in-place in orders. But he says, we don't want to enforce this stuff. That We don't want to arrest people because they've come out of their homes. But when Sonoma County put it into effect last night, the order said law enforcement will strictly enforce this and that you will be arrested if you're out for uh, an unapproved reason. So the governor's saying they could go down that road. He's not going anywhere near that yet. ABC's Alex Stone with us from Los Angeles as the nation adapts to its new normal. In New York, no martial law or shelter-in-place order yet, but the governor ordered a workforce reduction where businesses cannot have any more than 50% of their workforce in the office. And the governor said that can be adjusted as necessary as the coronavirus crisis only deepens. For my colleagues, I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to an ABC News special. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.